Uh, well, welcome to Crossroads, everybody. I just want to share with you the kind of encouragement I get on a weekly basis in the first service. During the second worship set, somebody comes over to me and whispers to me. And they said, Charlie, I see that you have a donut on the stage. You have tea and you have water. I'm afraid this is going to be a marathon today. <laughs> I said, well, thank you so much. Let me explain what those are for. The donuts is donuts with Deacon. The tea is because I live with the most adorable little disease carrier in Dallas, everybody. And uh, my whole family is a little sick this week. So all that said, I'm going to power through. I'm going to cough a little bit, but that's okay because it's not going to get to you. And I might have to take a break every once in a while and grab a sip of tea. We all know I talk too fast anyway. That's just a grace of God that we can rest, okay? Um, we are in a series on culture in Daniel, and this is our fifth week. And as we've talked about culture in Daniel, we've defined culture along the way, and we define culture as the shared attitudes, values, and practices of the people around you. And we've talked about kind of how our culture shapes in some ways how we act and how we live, or how the culture we bring into spaces shapes the way that people around us act, believe, and live. For example, there are many different kinds of cultures that we went into. I know full well next week is a noon Cowboys kickoff, and this service will be lighter, okay? That's just because I know the culture I live in, and that's just fine. 9.15 will be packed, and I'm okay with that, you know? And don't skip church, because we all need to pray for the Cowboys, all right? But realistically, why we're doing this, sh- this series is we're talking through the value of culture and character and what happens if those two things don't line up. Because sometimes what we find is the character of God, the culture of God, is at odds or ends with the culture that we live in. And this story so far in the book of Daniel, we're going to be in chapter 4 today, but if you've kept up with us, it, it literally is not a story of harmonious cultures and characters. It's one that has a lot of tension and angst. Daniel was a kid at 14, 15 that woke up one morning in his home country that he knew all his life in Israel and woke up the next morning transplanted to a new country, a new culture that didn't value what his family valued. They didn't know the God that he served that shaped his country's culture. He woke up as a prisoner in another country that that very much had a different character and had a different different culture and, and his character was different. And what you see as we've talked about kind of the different aspects of Daniel 1, 2, and 3 is you've seen the battle between those two things. The culture of the Babylonian Empire and the character of a man that follows the ways of God. And that's tough because I think more and more increasingly we see that tension in our own culture. And if you followed it, one of my favorite characters, today we're in Daniel chapter 4, like I said, and it's a kind of a first-person narrative from actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. And if you follow Nebuchadnezzar, his story is fascinating uh, because he has these waves of his recognition that God's character is better than the culture that he's built with his people. He's the emperor or the monarch of Babylon. And in chapter one, you see kind of he go against Daniel and how they're supposed to live and eat and breathe and Daniel's God wins. In chapter two, it's about a dream that nobody can interpret and Daniel's God wins. In chapter three, it's about who they're going to worship in some fire. And guess what? Daniel's God wins. And what happens with Nebuchadnezzar is oftentimes what happens with us is these waves of belief that God is good. He has these waves of belief that God is everything. And then he forgets, you know? He just seemingly forgets. And so coming off of chapter 3, 
where God showed up, and I watched the veggie tale because you guys sent it to me. There's three dudes in a fire, and God saves them from the fire. Nebuchadnezzar is blown away, and he says, your God is better than all my gods. And he leans in at the beginning of chapter 4, and he says in the third verse, how great are God's signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, and his authority continues from one generation to the next. This, today, our story, is one of character development of Nebuchadnezzar the king of the most powerful empire in the world. Because he has these waves of belief in a God and not belief in a God, of of affinity towards a God that he thinks is powerful and then forgetting and realizing that he's the most powerful one. And it builds to this point in chapter four, and this is the last we hear from Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. And really what he's struggling with all along isn't on what to eat or isn't on really an idea of a statue or a fire or a dream. Really what he struggles with all along is who is his version of God, himself or the one that Daniel talks about? There's a, there's a quote by Nietzsche, he's a philosopher, uh, one of the most popular and, and kind of shaping philosophers um, of the modern era. And, and he says this quote, I read about a month ago, it stuck with me. He says, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? I think it's really telling because I think that's what the tension in our text is today. I think Deep down, really deep down, we all battle every day with our desire to be God or our desire to let God be God of our lives. And that's what it comes down to. Today is a conversation about our pride. And it's difficult because it's subtle and it's pervasive and it grows slowly but is so powerful. Benjamin Franklin wrote about it, and I love this. He said, in reality, this is in his autobiographical work, he said, um, in reality, there are There is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It's still alive. It will every now and then peep out um, and show itself. You will see it perhaps often in this history. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility, right? It's the idea that pride is subtle and powerful, and it's a battle that you and I, like Nebuchadnezzar, fight. Because so far, we've talked about culture and character battles when it came to identity in chapter 1, and authority in chapter 2, and worship in chapter 3, and deliverance at the end of chapter 3. Today is probably the hardest of them all. Today is the culture of me. What happens when our pride gets in the way from God? So before we get into our text, um, we're going to do what we do at Crossroads every Sunday. We have two goals. This morning, together, we want to know God. (laughs) It sounds really easy, but we know God through studying the scriptures, because this is the way that we see the God that's invisible. He paints a picture of himself and says, this is what I'm like. Study this and know me. And, And as we do that, full knowledge of God isn't just knowing answers to the questions or books of the Bible. Full knowledge of God is allowing the knowledge of God to increase his influence in our world and experiencing that. So we want to know God as we study the character of himself in our scriptures, and we want to allow his influence to affect the world around us. And so we're going to spend some time in the next couple minutes, we're just going to pray, and I'm going to ask that you take some time and that you pray for yourself, because this is not a process by which you just sit there and you laugh and you ask why I'm coughing so much. This is a space and place where we believe the Holy Spirit is acting in this room to shape your spirit into the image of Jesus. Something's happening here because God is here. So I'm going to ask you to take a couple seconds and you just pray for yourself that the Holy Spirit might shape your soul this morning, that we might see God, the character of God, the person of Jesus in our scriptures and be better for it when we leave. 
I'm asking you to pray for me because, you know, all the things. All right? So join me. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here on another Sunday. I'm thankful you allow us to wake up this morning and show up this morning. I'm just so thankful that we can be here and study your scriptures and know you and experience the growing influence of your character in our lives. I pray that as we study about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4, Holy Spirit, I ask that you shape our spirits into the image of Jesus, that you convict us where we need to be convicted, and that you give us joy and encouragement where we need those things. So if you're comfortable, I'd ask that you guys take just a couple seconds and pray that the Holy Spirit might shape your soul this morning as you read the active living words from the scriptures. And then I'd ask that you pray for me, that I might get through this thing without coughing too much, and that I might do a good job of actually painting the picture of God's character that we find in the scriptures, that I might do a good job of telling who God is through Daniel chapter 4. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. Go to Daniel chapter 4, everybody. Let's catch up on a little context. So where we left off last, there was some fire he delivered. This is probably, this chapter is probably a couple decades later. This is the last we hear from Nebuchadnezzar. He's probably 20 or 30 years into his reign at this point. And, And what we see is a man largely at peace with where his kingdom is. It says in verse 1 and 2 that God had given him peace in his world. And in verse 3 and 4, he continues on that. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, Nebuchadnezzar was relaxing, and I was relaxing in my home, living luxuriously in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me badly. The things I imagined while lying on my bed, these visions in my mind were terrifying to me. So you have this picture that he's painting that when he says that God brought peace and prosperity to him in the verses above, that word there literally means rest. And and what he's resting from, especially in that world, I think I talked about it a couple weeks ago, but I think his father and the next two emperors or monarchs after him were killed in a coup inside. People tried to kill him and take his power. There was always a power struggle. And for 20 or 30 years, Nebuchadnezzar had set up a world where nobody was attacking him on the outside or the inside. He just felt at ease in a place, in a position where you always watched your back. And so when it says in our text that I was relaxing in my house, living luxuriously in my palace, he's referring to the rest that God brought for 10, 20, 30 years. And he said, I saw a dream that frightened me badly. They were terrifying to me. He's called out of this state of rest, and it's shocking. I lived in Chicago in college. I lived in a dorm room full of young men, 19 floors tall. A lot of pent-up stuff there, right? I lived on the 17th floor of this building, and it was in Chicago. And every single winter in January. Somebody thought it would be funny if, I don't know if Moody paid extra for these things, but let me tell you something. 
the fire alarms in this college, maybe we're just so afraid of hell, the fire alarms in this college were so loud. I am deaf in one ear. I sleep on the good one, and it would scare the life out of me. Once every January, just about, somebody, when it was really cold outside, would pull the fire alarm at Moody. And you would go from sleeping, like this is college guy sleeping, this is deep sleep, I'm not going to wake up till 1 p.m. the next day sleeping, this is, this should be my career sleeping, and you'd get woken up violently just to run down, because during fire alarms, they didn't let you use the elevator, because the elevator shaft could be on fire, I'd risk it at 17 floors, you'd run down 17 floors into whatever the weather was, and it was not probably in the positives, it was in the negatives, right? And you'd wait out there till they walked through every room and every floor and cleared the building, okay? You get woken up starkly from this place of peace. This is the visual image that's given from Nebuchadnezzar. It's not just, I woke up because I had a bad dream, I talked it through, and I went back down to sleep. This is, I was resting, and then I wasn't, and I was terrified, and if you were with us in chapter 2, kind of follows the same pattern. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar called his people in, and he said, I'm terrified, because he hasn't felt this way in a long time. I like what one commentator said. He said, as long as we are comfortable and at ease in the world, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. This is God calling Nebuchadnezzar out of his comfortability. And just as a side note for free, we are a people that are not called to comfortability. God doesn't hate comfortability, but we're not called to comfortability. We're called to preach and teach the ways of Jesus in a culture that might increasingly not expect or show value to the character of God. And so this is Nebuchadnezzar's wake-up call, and he's so terrified. He did what he did at the, the last stream in chapter 2. He called his wise men. He said, interpret this for me. They said, we can't do it. We don't know what's going on. So then he said, you know what? This happened before. I'm going to call Daniel. He, he actually follows the Most High God, is what he said there, the God of gods. Um, he's a polytheist, Nebuchadnezzar was, believed in a lot of gods. And so Daniel shows up, and when Daniel shows up, he says, you can teach me and tell me this dream. And so what we have here is, for the next few verses, I'm going to read it all in one chunk. We have the dream that he had. And what I want to do, just for sake of time this morning, is we're going to talk about the dream and the interpretation at the same time. They're two separate parts in our chapter today. And then we're going to talk about why it matters and spend most of our time there. But if you look at verse 10 with me, it begins the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And you can deal with this however you want. You might just want to sit there, close your eyes. And if you really close your eyes and listen, it'd probably scare you too, right? Verse 10, here we go. While I was watching, there was a tree in the middle of the land. It was enormously tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached far into the sky. It could be seen from the borders, all the borders of all the land. Its foliage was attractive and it's plentiful. It was on, it was there and there was food enough for all. Under, the, under it, the wild animals use it to seek shade and its branches, the birds use it to seek rest. All the creatures use the tree to feed themselves from it. While I was watching in my mind's vision on my bed, a holy sentinel came down from heaven. He called out loudly as follows, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave its taproot in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it, surrounded by the grass of the field. Let it become damp with the dew of the sky and let it live with the animals in the grass of the land. 
Let his mind be altered from that of a human being and let an animal's mind be given to him and let seven periods, seven years of time go by for him. This announcement is by the decree of the sentinels. This decision is by the pronouncement of the holy ones so that those who are alive may understand that the most high has authority over human kingdoms and he bestows them on whomever he wishes. He establishes over them even the lowliest of human beings. This is the dream, verse 18, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. Now you, Belshazzar, that's Daniel, declare its interpretation. All right, so he has this dream. There's a couple different parts in this dream I'm going to cover. And really we have three different aspects of it. The first one is he sees this, this tree. Verse 11, I saw a tree, it's large and strong. It's top reached far to the sky. It could be seen from the borders of the land. Here is why I think that he's terrified is because in ancient writings, they often use trees to describe nations, kings, or rulers. We see it even in the biblical writings in Ezekiel 31. It says, consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon. Assyria was another formidable nation that actually took over the northern part of Israel before these guys were taken over, and they completely decimated that part, and we never heard from them again. It says, consider Assyria, and says, once a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest, it towered on high. Its top above was thick foliage. So I think when Nebuchadnezzar saw a tree Huge tree, branches and everything being safe, protected, fed, resting is the word it used under that. He saw himself. He saw himself. And I think from then he got scared. You got to understand, and we've talked about it, Nebuchadnezzar had incredible power. Power that we didn't see for hundreds of years before or after. Literally. Nebuchadnezzar had sole reign over everything that happened in the known world. And, and there are three major kingdoms, empires, after Nebuchadnezzar, and none of them had a centrality of power as big as Babylon. The Medo-Persian Empire followed the Babylonian Empire. And they were ruled by a monarch, but there was laws in the Medo-Persian Empire where literally if a law was passed, the monarch could not annul or reverse the law. It limited his scope and power. He couldn't just change his mind. Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. Read the first three chapters. The, the empire that followed the Medo-Persian Empire, if we got some history buffs in here, was the Greek Empire. And they were ruled by a republic. It gave more power divested to the people and less to the centrality of the monarch. And then after that followed the Roman Empire, and for a large part of the Roman Empire's reign, you had a senate that controlled the rules and the governing, and the emperor was for the most part a figurehead for a long time. So when he sees this big tree and everything rests underneath it, I think he absolutely knows that he is the one being talked about in our passage. And then Daniel confirms that. He says in verse 22, it's you, O king, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness is such that it reaches to heaven, and your authority is to the ends of the earth. And this is the beginning of our tension this morning, the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar versus the greatness of God, the deity of the king or the deity of God. And then some holy sentinels came down. Your version says a couple different words there. I'll read the verse itself. It's 13 and 14. A holy sentinel came down from heaven. 
He called out loudly, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. The NIV translates this messenger, um, actually the Septuagint. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Here we have Aramaic and, and it's actually um, translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. It uses the word angel there, but this is written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective and he doesn't know what to call this thing. So he calls it literally, um, my translation says, a holy sentinel. The word there means watcher or one who sees. So he is this tree that's big and broad, expansive. And he says, I I see these messengers, ones who see. And and the implication there is, like I don't see, and it's kind of a theme for our morning, for our chapter, is what we can see and what we can't. He said, these ones that see come down and they say, lop off its branches. It kind of paints the picture like I had some friends of mine talk to me about their kids in pools the other day. And, and pools used to be like my definition of joy in the summer. I have a one-year-old. Pools are not. They're terrifying, you know? And, and they talked about just they were at a pool and their kid got aggressive and um, he kind of doesn't know how to swim. And he jumped off this ledge that they were sitting on. And, and the mom was telling me the story. And she said, but the lifeguard saw it and knew it and had the whistle in hand and was ready to go in there. It's kind of this picture of a lifeguard that sits up top, away from, not in, and overlooks everything and knows. Can see beyond your perspective. He said, there's a holy sentinel that came, this seer, this watcher, and said, lop off all its branches. So Daniel interprets this in verse 22. And he said, you will be driven from human society and you will live with other wild animals. You'll be fed like grass. Uh, You'll be fed grass like oxen and you'll become damp with the dew of the sky. This is a judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. And he's terrified. He's terrified. Because how do you go from the position of the utmost power in the world to somebody that identifies with beasts? And what I love about this vision is it didn't just stop there. God didn't just say, I'm going to show you I'm better than you and we're going to call it a day. He said, but we're going to leave a stump. It's taproot in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it until it's surrounded by the grass in the field. And Daniel interprets that in verse 26 and said, this is what the stump means. The taproot is your kingdom and you will be restored when you come to the understanding that heaven rules. Heaven there is just another way of saying God rules. In the Old Testament, sometimes they didn't write God as often as we would now because they had reverence for his name. So they used other words to describe him. And so when you recognize that you are not the one in total control, then we'll restore what you think is yours to begin with. This is a text about the power of God against the pride of humanity. And what I love about that section um, This is a judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. It's a judgment on its pride. And we're going to look at what pride does in just a second. But I love that in the middle of his judgment on the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, God leaves a space for restoration. And we talked about it when we did the Sermon on the Mount series. But judgment, by and large, is just our ability as followers of Jesus that live out the character of Jesus in a culture that doesn't necessarily reflect or value Jesus. Our job is to step into those spaces and places and say there's a way of God and there's a way not of God. And intrinsically, that's a judgment. But judgment is not there so that we can be above. It's there to point people towards restoration every time. Judgment is not there so that we might condemn. It's there so that people might know that there's a way to be redeemed. And sometimes we lost our way in the church with that. It's in the middle of this story and this vision that's terrifying with this king that's going to lose all his power. God says, but redemption is possible. And that's the story of the Bible. And then Daniel stops. Look at verse 19. So he hasn't told Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation yet. He just knows it. This is one of my favorite parts of our text. Verse 19, Daniel says, um, 
It says, then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was upset for a brief time. His thoughts were alarming to him. Then he said, sir, if only the dream were for you, were for your enemies and its interpretation applied to your adversaries. And, And that part honestly took me back a little bit. He paused. He paused and he He had compassion in this moment. Here's why I don't get it. His Daniel at this point had been living as a captive in a land that wasn't his for probably 30 years. And in that day, they valued their national identity more than their individualistic identity, something we don't necessarily comprehend. And so to him, he was, before he was Daniel, before he was Belshazzar, before he was mostly anything, he was, that's why we started with identity, he was a Jew that followed God and he would do anything to get back there. He's been captive for 30 years. He has a pronouncement to make on the guy that took him captive, and he doesn't do it giggling or smiling. He does it with compassion. That blows me away. It blows me away because I think oftentimes, you guys know what schadenfreude is? A little German this morning? It's the idea that I take pleasure in other people's pain or failure. And I think that's probably a manifestation of our pride as well. I fall too quickly in taking pleasure in the pain of others. I... School's back in session. I don't know if you guys um, ever had to do this growing up. I did when teachers got a little lazy, which is okay. Their job is difficult. They would give pop quizzes, and then they would do, do you guys know what the trade and grade thing is? It's when you, like, pass the paper to the right, and you grade somebody else's paper. There are two kinds of people that trade and grade. There's the people that are rooting for you and that make, like, little red X's next to the ones you got wrong. And then there's me. I take out the biggest Sharpie I have, and I make noises to let you know, ho, ho, no, sir. It's a big check mark across the paper, you know? I let people know they got it wrong because it makes me feel superior. I was in, like, third grade. This problem of pride has been mine for a long time, too, you know? This idea that we take pleasure in the failure or the pain of others. Here's my point, is I think sometimes as Christians, we have to step into spaces where we judge or speak against the way people walk, talk, live, the culture they create, and sometimes we do it with a hint of schadenfreude and not compassion. And that's not what God does. It's not what Jesus did, and that's not what Daniel did here. This guy took him captive, and he paused and said, I don't want to say this to you. I wish this was for your enemies and not you. One commentator said, This was a distinctive feature of true prophets of God. Though they often had to predict judgments, they were nevertheless grieved when any of God's creatures were chastised. I think the point of this section in the book of Daniel is that truthfulness never comes at the expense of compassion. Never. And so Daniel is in the middle of this place where he's not afraid for his life if he pronounces judgment on the most powerful man in the world. He doesn't want it to happen because he doesn't want to see this guy get hurt. And that's exactly what happens when God steps into our pain that we've caused and created. He doesn't snicker and sneer when we fall short or when we are confronted by our own sin. He says, I'm so sorry. It's by God who loves (laughs) And so Daniel reflects the love of Jesus and of the God that he follows. He's living out his godly character in this moment that oftentimes we probably wouldn't. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his pronouncement of the dream in verse 27, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. He says, Break away from your sins by doing what is right and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps your prosperity will be prolonged. I love what he says here. And we start to now in our text see what Nebuchadnezzar's pride has done. It's the beginning of kind of our conversation about the pride of Nebuchadnezzar that had built up. 
And he's going to start talking more in the first person again. And so what we see fundamentally is that the pride of Nebuchadnezzar had changed his relationship with the people around him. And that's what pride does. It changes your relationship with the people around you. I uh, spent a summer in San Francisco. And when I read the scriptures, by the way, when I see the relationship of Jesus with his people, I see a man that served others well and wasn't prideful about it. And this man was also the man that we call God. I know stories of when he sat with a woman at the well in the middle of the day because nobody else would, because nobody valued her, because she had made some bad choices. I see a man who eats, eats with people that most of the Jewish people wouldn't talk to, and they walk by and they say, how could you be eating with that person? They're worse than us and not, worse our, not worth our time. I think the biggest story of the humility of Jesus is when he washes the disciples' feet in the upper room because that was disgusting. He walked with open sandals on dirt roads with animals. I'll just leave it at that. I worked in San Francisco for a summer, and I led this team that gathered in high school kids from across the country. And about 115 or so, 120 each week. And sometimes there was a couple big churches, and most times it was four or five or six little churches. And um, we put them to work. And we would do... We worked for soup kitchens and food banks, and it was kind of like any youth, you know, any kind of missionary trip, youth trip, you kind of build towards your last gathering session. And so like Friday night is when all the emotion hits and everything's coming together. There's usually a fire and God is near, you know what I'm talking about? And then life changes and baptisms and rededications, and we post the numbers and get more donors, right? Kidding. Um, But I think it's just the weight of all you experience, and you get to let it out. And so a lot of these kids came in from all over the country and hadn't seen poverty like we saw in San Francisco, which is so pronounced. And they didn't have a way to process it. And so we tried to help them, tried to help them process it. Kids that mostly came from upper middle class families. And on the last night, to show kind of humility, it was a company policy, otherwise I would not have done it. They made us wash the feet of all the participants. I was a leader there, so I had to wash the feet of all the adult leaders there. I had to wash the feet of grown men, everybody, all right? I, it was disgusting. <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I want to I pretend to you that it was my joy to serve the Lord, but I've had higher joys than that one, all right? Simply put, it reminded me that I am no better than this act because Jesus was no better than this act. It reminded me that our pride oftentimes keeps us from serving the people that we're called to serve. And this is what pride does, and this is why pride changes the relationship you have with other people is because pride overvalues yourself at the expense of others. Every time. Nebuchadnezzar built an empire, and he said, in, in, a couple, in a couple sentences, he said, look at what I've done, essentially. And he forgot all the people that helped him get there. And clearly what David's implying, or Daniel's implying, is that you overlooked the poor. You've built this monstrosity to yourself but at the expense of what? Repent of that. Your pride has caused you to forget and neglect the people that you're called to serve as their leader. C.S. Lewis said, pride gets no pleasure of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. He also said, a proud man is always looking down on the things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that is above you. So we begin to see the ramifications of the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. And so pride is not just a me and God conversation. Pride is a me and you conversation all the time. It changes my relationship with the people around us. So Nebuchadnezzar heard what Daniel said. Daniel said, I care about you. I don't want this to happen. Repent. And maybe your goodness, your, 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 um, 
your reign will keep going. And look at verse 28. Now it happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, after 12 months, he happened to be walking around on the battlements of the royal palace of Babylon. And so this is, again, 12 months later. I think we need to talk about for just a second, like we talked about at the beginning, the waves of pride. Because we live in an instant culture where we think these things happen overnight. We think we're not prideful and we're never going to get prideful and we think pride is so powerful because it is. And so we don't understand that pride, as powerful as it might be, is extremely subtle and builds over time. Because this is what I believe happened in this text. He called on Daniel because he believed in Daniel and trusted Daniel. Daniel gave him a not-so-great interpretation of the dream for him. He lived this out before in every chapter in our book so far. I don't think he said to himself, I don't believe that at all. I'm too good, too big for God. I think the reason why it's 12 months later is slowly over time, he started to believe in himself again and forget what Daniel said about the dream. I think it's waves of pride and waves of spaces where he believed that God was bigger than him. And then he forgot, like we do, like I do. And I love what it says in our text when it talks about kind of what he does next. It says, he had me walking around the battlements of the royal palace, and the king uttered these words, is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal residence by my own mighty strength and for my own majestic honor? <laughs> so you got to understand Babylon here to understand what's happening. Babylon was known throughout the world as the biggest, best, brightest. Actually, 200 years after this, um, you have different rulers that wanted to go back to Babylon and, and meet a Persia and, and make this their headquarters. You have biblical historians in the first century BC that actually talk about and reference the beauty and, and the overwhelming nature of what Babylon was. There's a couple different authors and historians that talk about it. It says that Nebuchadnezzar stood on his palace of his roof, which had been made of cedar from the forest of Lebanon, stacked all around were 15 million bricks, each containing his name and royal titles. He was surrounded by six walls and a 262-foot moat. Here's what I want to get across. You've got to understand that as, Babylon wa- as, as Nebuchadnezzar walked in the city that he built, do you realize that he had almost every brick, and we have evidence of this, as we've dug up Babylon, he had almost every brick stamped with his face on it. He has some serious pride. Here's the deal. I don't know if you guys know this, but we love our state in Texas. Like, we love it. I knew this. The first moment I knew that we had a different relationship with our state than a relationship with the states other than this state. I grew up two miles from here. I didn't know it existed. I thought all states saw their states like Texas. We have a pledge and a song and, you know, all those good things. I was in Chicago, and I referenced to my buddy who grew up in Chicago. I said, yeah, so in your year of state history, did you not learn about X, Y, and Z? And he said, my what? And I said, in your year of state history, you heard me. He said, what year of state history? I said, you, you didn't take a year of state history in middle school somewhere? He said, I live in Illinois. It'd be two weeks, and they say, we're done. You know, I mean, I didn't realize that not every state teaches a year of their own history. And he said, how prideful is that? I said, well, you got a point here. I have no idea, you know. I had another friend of mine come down from Illinois, and the first time he was in Texas, he actually, as we're driving, I'd never noticed this before, as we're driving under some underpasses, you can see it as you drive, sometimes there are Texas symbols, the state, imprinted on the bricks we use to build the things we built, right? And he said, why, are, why is the state of Texas branded on the, did you guys forget where you were? And I said, I, said, I, I didn't even realize that, we just 
really like ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar had 15 million bricks with his face and name on it, and every brick that he used to build the kingdom that he had that he walked in reminded him of his greatness. So every day as he walked in his gardens, every day as he walked in his kingdom, there's a subtle message that, yeah, I mean, I know of this God that Daniel told me about, but look what I did. I think no more so, we see an example of that, than in the hanging gardens, the hanging gardens um, of, of Babylon are one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. If you don't know how they got there, it's fascinating. He, he made a pact with another king, and um, that pact was set in stone by him taking on the king's daughter. She was from a mountainous region, and where Babylon was, was not very mountainous. Not a lot of herbaceous life growing there. And because he valued this wife, he literally built her in the middle of nowhere a garden that looked like a mountainous region somewhere. That's how much he loved her. My wife asked me to hang a porch swing. I got to it a year later, all right? I mean, <laughs> this is a man that will do anything to build anything in the middle of nowhere. He built this garden that people would come from for miles and miles and miles and talked about hundreds and hundreds of years later. And every day as he's walking in this garden, all he sees is what he's built. My wife and I love to go to the Dallas Arboretum. It's one of my favorite places in the city. Because as you walk through the Dallas Arboretum, you forget that you're in the middle of a city. You forget that. And I love Dallas. You need, what I'm going to say in the next five minutes, you need to understand how much I love this place. All right? But Dallas is pretty flat. Okay? Dallas isn't known for its intrinsic beauty. People that move here move here for economy. And that's a good reason, not beauty. All right? And so we're walking in the middle of the Arboretum and you forget that you're in a flat place with not a ton of vegetation in the middle of the summer. It's beautiful. Every day, Nebuchadnezzar walked through his garden, his palace, his kingdom, his bricks. And I think every day there was a slow, small whisper, look what you've done. And here's what we have to understand about pride. Fundamentally, pride prevents us from seeing clearly. That's what it does. This theme of watchers that came in and understanding who gave what. Pride prevents him from seeing clearly. He didn't see the people that helped him get there. And he didn't see the God that gave good gifts to him in the first place. Everything he does, it's built on his pride, prevents him from seeing what actually happened. And so he uttered these words, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for my royal residence and my own mighty strength and for my own majestic honor? And here's where you have to understand pride is incredibly powerful. And it's subtle, and it builds over time, and it whispers to us, but the power that it wields is huge. There's a verse in Proverbs that talks about the six things that the Lord hates and the seven um, things that are an abomination to him, and the first thing it lists is pride. The very first thing in Proverbs 6. It says, here's the things that God hates, and number one is pride, and here's why. Because I think all other sins, all other ways that we flee from the goodness of God starts with the pride of ourselves. It happened in the garden, Genesis uh, 3. The very first sin wasn't that Adam ate an apple instead of an orange. That's not why God got mad. The problem with Genesis 3, where this whole thing broke down, is Adam weighed two things. Do I trust that God is good and can tell me good things, or am I better than God? And he chose option B because Eve did. Pride is the subsequent. Pride is, is the sin that leads to all of our subsequent sins. C.S. Lewis said, pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Jonathan Edwards says it like this, remember that pride is the worst viper, that it's, it's the worst viper that is in the heart. 
the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. It was the first sin that ever was and lies lowest in the foundation of Satan's whole building. And here's why it's important to understand the power of pride, because pride causes us not to see clearly. It causes us to overvalue ourselves at the expense of others. But ultimately, what pride does, from Adam to Nebuchadnezzar to me to you, pride puts us in God's place. No such thing as small pride. When we get to a space and place where we think that the culture we're building is bigger or better than the character of God, that's pride. And so it doesn't just cause a small ripple effect. It causes a huge, huge chain of reactions that causes us to be put in the place that God said is his as the giver of good things. So Nebuchadnezzar looks at his land and he says, look what I have built. Here's what I think is fascinating. You can go a couple different places with this. We could talk about pride and sin. Uh, you know, our belief that, that ultimately we won't stumble in the ways that other people have stumbled in because we think we're bigger and better than, and that's just not true because sin is subtle too. And so sometimes we look at people's messed upness and we say, I'm never going to get there, but it's one small step each day, not one giant step. And all you saw was the leap, not the small steps. We could talk about that. But more than that, I want to talk about the grace that we have of living in the space that we live and the pride that comes from that. We live in Flower Mound, Texas, everybody. I don't think, just I'm going to go on a, on a limb here, I don't think that the people that found Flower Mound, Texas, were walking by with their horses one day, came to the mound in Flower Mound and said, oh my goodness, I have not seen such beauty, let's make camp here, okay? I've been to the mound. It's awesome, but not in that kind of way. There's a, there's a documentary on the city of Dallas that I watched a couple years ago and how it got here. Most cities were built because there were tributaries or some kind of ocean property or rivers that led to oceans or there was railroads. Dallas had none of that. Dallas got to be Dallas because a bunch of rich guys got together and said, let's start something with some rich people, right? What, what I mean by that is literally, I think there are places in the world you can live and be reminded that God's bigger than you. I don't know if this one's one of them because I can't look and see a mountain. And then I look at Flower Mound, like where we live, and it's a grace of God that I live here. It was one of my biggest pet peeves in student ministry, and I went through this too, this angst of moving away from where you live. And, and when students would come back or before they went to college, and they'd say, I just want to get out of this place, you know? And I'd look at them and say, you don't know anything about anything yet, one. And two, this place, travel a bit, is so good to you and has been so good to you. And they got to grow up to see it, and that's just maturation, but, but when you talk about where we live, you've got to understand the grace of where we live is a depiction of God's goodness, but oftentimes it feels like it's something we've done. Let's just throw some numbers out at you. This is the census.gov. Uh, the median income for Flower Mounds, 128000 The national median income is $61,000. You talk about the fact that Flower Mound and Argyle and Louisville, they have some of the best high schools in the state of Texas. Argyle wins awards. I didn't even know they had, but they win them every year. People move here because the schools are great. They move here because we have all these fantastic opportunities coming into our town. They move here because of what we've built together, because crime is low, incomes are high, and schools are the best, and it sets you up for the best chance to succeed. I found an article this week. There's a website in a uh, business owner's cohort called the Chamber of Commerce. It's nationwide. It's a digital resource for small business owners. They evaluated 2,500 cities in Texas with five criteria, and they found the number one city to live in in all of the 2,500 in Texas. You know what it is? Flower Mound, Texas, right? And look, I'm not trying to make us cocky. I'm just simply saying there's a ton of these kinds of websites, and you can look, and there's different ones that are interspliced on top of there, but no matter where you look, most, most charts and lists you look on, 
are going to put Flower Mound or Frisco or Argyle as top places to live in the country. Income-wise, education-wise, my point is sometimes we drive by all these things and we see, look what we've done. Because we are a blessed people. And I wonder if we're not like Nebuchadnezzar and if we're not reminded that God is good, we take credit for God's goodness. And when we do that, and why pride is dangerous is because that is simply self-worship. Because we live in a place where God has been so gracious and it's so easy to forget, just like Nebuchadnezzar. It's so easy to forget that we live in a place that magnifies the grace of God in our world. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't either. He says, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. Then follow with me, verse 31. It said, while these words were still on the king's lips, a voice came down from heaven. While they were still on the king's lips, a voice came down from heaven. I love how he wrote this, because when he wrote this, what he's literally meaning there is that I just don't need God for the big things like the moats and the gardens I build, but if God chooses, he doesn't have to give me my next breath. It's a sentence that interweaves the idea of utter dependence on God for not just buildings, but life. And that'll challenge your assumptions of self-worth and self-goodness real quick when you lose your health. And so he said, before I was even done talking, essentially, um, it says, a voice came down from heaven. It's hereby announced to you, O King, King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom has been removed from you. You'll be driven from human society and you'll live with wild animals. You'll be fed grass like oxen and seven periods, seven years of time will pass. For you understand that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to whomever he wishes. So, a couple side notes as we move on. One is what probably happened here was a mental break. There's actually a mental disease called uh, biothony, and, and it's really when you believe that you're an animal. And there's been a couple cases about this. You can look it up if you want to, where they follow grown men and they start going from being a functioning, fully functioning adult to believing that they are some kind of ox and they eat grass and dirt and don't shower and live outside. It's real weird, right? What's probably happening is he had some kind of mental break. I think what God is doing there is showing us that, showing Nebuchadnezzar essentially, that all the things you thought were great, I can take from you, that you didn't build this. And it's a lesson you need to learn. Because in taking credit for my goodness, you're negating my grace. And it says in verse 34, but I, but at the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up towards the heaven and my sanity returned to me. I love that phrase, I, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of the appointed time, I looked up at the heaven and my sanity returned to me. One commentator said sanity begins with a realistic self-appraisal. I think it's so true. I think what this whole passage is getting at in some ways as kind of a medium of teaching is it's talking about what we see and what we don't see. Pride causes us or pride prevents us from seeing things clearly, things that we can't see about others or about God. And so what happens with Nebuchadnezzar as he walks through this story is he realizes that he was looking in the wrong place. And so he says, when I looked up, and saw. And what that is, is it stands in place for when I focused my attention where my attention should be, things fell back into place. I played basketball growing up and uh, I was a point guard because, you know, look at me. I was a point guard and I remember when I was like the fourth grade, you start playing 
and you try to learn to dribble, and it's disastrous. You all have seen the YMCA games. I used to ref those in high school right down here. They'll take one dribble, and they'll pick it up, and like Heisman kids, and then take another dribble. You know, it's adorable. Uh, And then as they get better at dribbling, they get better at actually doing it and running. But I mean, when you learn how to dribble, you're focused on you do you. And so you're like down here dribbling like this. You have no idea what's happening around you. And as a point guard, your job is to distribute the goodness of the basketball to the players on your team. That'll preach all day long, everybody, you know? Point guard to pastor. That's a book title I'm working on, okay? Anyway, so they had these glasses when I was growing up. If you didn't learn by fourth grade to actually keep your eyes up so you could do your job. These glasses you'd put on, they were big plastic things, and they went out this far, and they would not let you look down and dribble the basketball. You were forced to keep your eyes up so you could do your job. (laughs) So what that meaning is here and what happens with Nebuchadnezzar is you realize that where you look determines oftentimes who you're becoming and what you're doing with the goodness of God. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to look up and realize that's where my goodness comes from because that's my job as the king of these people. And so it's sense that he understands his role and his place in the world. This summer we had a creed class, um, and one of the creeds we looked at was the Apostles' Creed. And it starts with this phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And there are these different writings throughout church history that church fathers has given us called catechisms. And, and, and Martin Luther writes one, and it's a short one because he, he was not, he was a long-winded fellow. We would get along. He wrote the shorter one, and he took this one phrase, he took that phrase, and he asked the question, what does this mean? And I love what he wrote. He said, I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he's given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still preserves them. He's richly and daily provides me with food and clothing, home and family, property and goods, and all that I need to support this body and life. That he protects me, from all danger, guards and keeps me from all evil, and all this purely out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all which I am in duty bound to thank and praise, to serve and obey him, this is most certainly true. Nebuchadnezzar finally realizes his place in respect to God. He can finally see clearly. Here's what I love about this. There's Ultimately, what he finds is humility that is just sometimes painful to find. And there's a couple different kinds of humility. You have false humility and true humility. And, and what I love about actual humility is it always points back to the goodness of God. So a couple different kinds. You guys have seen and heard people probably that talk woe is me, that Eeyore all the time. I'm just not good enough. I'm not great enough. No, you're not. But the point of biblical humility isn't to talk about how you fall short. Because if all you do is talk all the time about how you fall short, that's just a manifestation of another kind of pride because it's purely self-absorption. The point of biblical humility is to talk about how we fall short and then point towards God's goodness that he loved us anyway. Biblical humility always comes back to the restoration of God to save a broken people. Our brokenness magnifies God's goodness, majesty, and strength. That's biblical humility. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is say, I am not enough, but look at God who is. It's a beautiful turning point in his life when he finally realized that I'm not my own God. And I'm okay with that. And he had to learn the hard way. Hard way. Tim Keller says this about humility. It's not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's, thinking, it's not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. And it's thinking of myself less. Because ultimately, when we understand 
ourselves and understand what pride does, it takes away from the goodness of God and doesn't tell the story of the grace of God. And that's where we come to at the end of this thing. And it's going to be really churchy cheesy, but welcome to Sunday morning here. It happens sometimes. If pride prevents us from seeing clearly, grace are the glasses that restores our sight. Come on, everybody. Write that down. Tweet that out. Okay? And here's the big idea. It is essentially, I think pride is subtle. I think pride is powerful. I think pride is something we have to fight in and of ourselves all the time. It doesn't go away. It's a common shared pull that we all have to put ourselves on the throne of God and put everybody else, him and other people below us. Pride doesn't allow us to see clearly. And here's how we stop pride in its tracks. Day after day after day, just as subtly and even more powerfully, we learn and read and tell the stories of the grace of God. If we want to push back pride in our lives, we tell the story of God's grace to ourselves. Because you cannot, you cannot be a person that fully understands grace and is prideful at the same time. You can't be a person that fully understands that God has given you, without you deserving it, all that you need and then still thinks, but look how good I am. If you understand grace, you fight back pride. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. He looks up and says, that's my God that has given me things. That's what I love about this story talks about the pervasiveness, the subtleness, the power of pride, how it leads to all sorts of other things, how it subjugates people and ultimately replaces God with ourselves. And at the end, it says, if you want to fight back pride, embrace grace. That our God is a good God who's given us more than we deserve. And so when we drive by our Walmarts and our Whole Foods and all the beauty that we've built around the mound of Flower Mound, maybe sometimes we stop ourselves from thinking, look what we did, and instead say, God allowed me to live here. How good is our God? We fight back pride with grace. What I love about this text, honestly, more than anything, is I don't think Nebuchadnezzar ever ended up really following God. Um, it's not mine to say. I might meet him on the other side when I get there, but I don't think he ever did. I think he had waves when he's like, oh, that God's pretty cool, and let's, let's follow him. But he followed a lot of other gods, too. He's a polytheist. So if that's the case, this is the only chapter in the Bible written by a pagan, <laughs> written by somebody that didn't believe or follow God, which is fascinating to me. It's also the last two verses of this chapter we're going to end with. It's the last we ever hear from Nebuchadnezzar, ever. The next chapter picks up with another king, another ruler, another emperor. And so it built the first four chapters on how big and powerful and mighty this guy was. And his high point, his climax, his drop the mic and walk off is, I finally realize that my pride isn't worth anything, but God's goodness is. And so he ends his time on our stage in the book of Daniel, the pagan that wrote a chapter about the goodness of God by saying this in the last two verses, I extolled the Most High, and I praised and glorified the one who lives forever. For his authority is an everlasting authority. His kingdom extends from one generation to the next. All the inhabitants of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he wishes with an army of heaven and with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps his hand and says to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar's life points to the grace of God and fights back the pride that we all carry with us because we all have this deep desire to be our own God. May we be a church that as we proclaim the message of the grace of God fights back pride in our world as we try and proclaim the character of God in a culture that's probably a little too prideful. And might that lead us to worship a God who's good? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for, I'm thankful for the reminders in the scriptures that you're bigger than me, for the reminders in scriptures that the good things I have aren't because I'm good, but because you are. 
It's so easy to slip into pride. It's so easy to think that look what we've built in churches and spaces and places and flyer men. It's so easy to stop remembering that all these good things come because you love us and you're good to us. It's so easy to forget grace. As we worship, as we worship, may you instill in our hearts just a joy that comes from understanding what grace is. Might that fight back any pride we might have as we try and take your place. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.